from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Raymond Greer. Raymond grew up in the Watts area of L.A. He was in the movie business in the early 70s, first as an actor, then as a casting director. The last movie he was in was The Nutty Professor One with Eddie Murphy. After his acting career, Raymond got involved with street youth counseling. I started the interview by asking Raymond where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up on the east side of Los Angeles called Watts, California. I was born in East L.A. and raised in Watts around 103rd and Central. So you grew up there all your life? Yes, and I went to Carl Virginia High and I uh, graduated at Jefferson High School, Thomas Jefferson High School, which is on the east side as well. And what was religious life like? Well, I started out being a Baptist member at seven years old and singing in church choir, of course. I do still sing. I I was a Baptist for many years and uh, went to Pentecostal as I got older and in Holiness Church uh, as well. Your your whole family went to church? Well, yeah, well, I had a stepmother, a couple of stepmothers. My dad, uh, I lived with my dad. Uh, my real mother got killed on Central East Side of Los Angeles by accident. A guy came in and uh, shot to uh, behind some money his uh, mother-in-law and his uh, common-law wife at the time in 1956, and she got killed on Washington and Central. It was in the newspaper and whatnot, but the, she, he shot his mother-in-law in his common or wife, but they didn't die. My mother ended up dying, so I was, you know, I grew up as a motherless child, mm. and uh, my dad was the only one, and I, you know, there was, was a couple of women's women that he, we did, he did share his life with, kind of like, was like mother to me. They were or were not like your, like a mother to you? They, it was a couple of them out of the five women <laughs> that he had, uh, we end up, uh, he, I guess, well, two of them was his the first wife I didn't get a chance to really relate with, but the second wife, she was like a mother to me, and the, mm. and the common-law wife he was with, uh, they were they were real good mothers to me. Yeah. And, I mean, as far as accepting me as, their, as I was their only son, which uh, kind of set a ground for me, and then it was my auntie helped out as well. So what were your interests growing up? It's funny you ask that. I always liked the entertainment field. My first job was, uh, like, I was about 14 years old. It was in a liquor store as a box boy. I ended up cashier and, and a, a butcher. But I, my my goal was in life is of being in the movie industry. I, I wanted to be an actor at first, and I studied some. I went to the theater uh, school. Uh, however, I kind of got into a few movies here and there, Black Girl Jones, Uptown Saturday Night, with Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, and also Jim Kelly working in film, a few movies with him, and, and uh, and I did uh, what you call at that time they used to call extra, until I worked my way into casting, assistant casting director, in which I went out and got people for parts and 
and stuff like that with ETM production. However, I did technical assistant directing as well. So uh, I got into the movie industry real tough at the time. I mean, this was like the early 70s, mid-70s, 80s, 90s, and the uh, last movie I worked in was uh, Nutty Professor 1 mm. with Eddie Murphy, and I did Photo Devil for him and uh, also Slash Production Assistant slash assistant casting director. So I wore about three hats. But that was always my goal to be in the industry. But I ended up working for the city, doing street youth counseling as well, and uh, working with the Mayor I Can program with Jim Brown, mm-hmm. which is a well-known uh, organization nationwide at the time. And I got into Colors United as well. So I ended up going back into the community. And I also was a Black Panther as well, baby Black Panther at the time, which was the headquarters on 41st and Central, which was on the east side of Central. East out of Los Angeles. They had a shootout with the police department, and uh, well, they had asked me to leave because I was all the miners had to leave. They were kind of expecting the revolution movement on that because it was a lot of brutality, police brutality going on, unfairness, and race, racial tension was going on at the time. Black Student Union at Carver Junior High, and we started a uh, what you call boycott because they weren't teaching black history and brown history in the, in the schools. So we all protested about it, and then the next thing was a nation wide reaction in all the schools and colleges when we decide to uh, protest and boycott the situation at hand and, and let them know that they got to change the history book. So I was a somewhat activist as well. Yeah, so Raymond, you turned into an activist very young in life. Oh, yes, yes. And, and you want to hear some interesting I did stay in Orange County, Santa Ana, for a couple of years in 60, after the Watts riot, 65 to about 67 a couple of years, and I had a real good experience with racism at the time. Mm-hmm. And when I had a taste of it myself, I that's what made me kind of like get involved with the movement. Funny thing, I wasn't raised to hate white folk or, you know, Jewish folks or Persian people. I, I was raised to be openly love your neighbor, you know, as you want them to love you. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing that but I was always, I, I, I said, well, you know what? I, I found out that it's the parents that were teaching their children differentiations of the color if you will. Mm-hmm. They were raising them that the you know, black people is the dirt, black people not to be trusted. When I found out it was just the era of of, of one race uh in life, I knew that someone had to go out and step out and, and make a difference. And I choose to make that step even though I had my anger and and, 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 and uh bitterness about the whole matter at hand and and, and I found out it's worldwide. So, Raymond, describe the experience that you had when you were young that really turned you to realizing something had to be done. I was about, I would say, somewhere 11 or 12 years old. And uh, I had the, the, the first experience in, 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 in Orange County. I used to have this uh, little Anglo-Saxon white guy, white boy named uh, uh, Roy. And I, we took a liking to each other. And I used to walk home. He used to stay around the corner from me. And and, and I remember going in his house. And that's the first time I said I heard that. Uh, you know, when you play, hey mom, uh, can I tell him how we used to play uh, high go speed? And any go any mini mighty mo catch him by his toe. If you holler, let him go. Any mini mighty mo. And he said that doesn't bother you. And I, it didn't at the time because I liked him. Mm-hmm. And I, I I was just learning. So I left that door open, but then I said, you know what, that, that, that I didn't learn. To, I, you know, I couldn't put the wording together between race, racial thing or prejudice. 
So I couldn't distinct which was what. And I used to think prejudice was racist and racism was the prejudice until later on, you know, I researched and investigated. So that was the first time when I was in Santa Ana, that's the first time I had experienced uh, the racial and prejudice situation. Mm-hmm. Now, how is it that you ran into the Black Panthers and got involved with them? Uh, I was an explorer in, in the police department, Newton Street D- Division. That's what you call a little junior police officer. You know, you study the codes and et cetera, learn how to be a police officer. And then they were talking about sending me to college, be undercover, like as if I was a student there or something, and, and they wanted me to be uh, informer. I just took it as if they was taking advantage of the situation, and I, I just felt unjust. And, and, and finally, when I got into the Black Student Union, about the, the, the uh, it was an Asian, I mean, it was an Asian guy named Mr. Kawana at the uh, Carver Junior High, and he was the one really enlightened me to get to the to, to the point. He enlightened me and others. And you know uh, these these history. He, he was a history teacher as well, and he said, you know, these history books are not correct. He said, but he talked just like this. He said, I'm not telling you to um, protest, and I'm not going to tell you not to protest them. But you guys are not getting a fair shake and a fair deal with the history. If it's going to be out here, it needs to be out right. And so when we talked amongst ourselves. We decided to start a black student union, which didn't mean it was all about just being all black said to be about just like the Black Panthers. It wasn't all black people in there. It was in that movement, if you don't already know, in the movement. And when I got into Black Student Union, I mean, naturally I wanted to get into Black Panthers because they believe in equality and the fairness of game and say, hey, we just want equality and, and stop the uh, police brutality. So that's how I got led into the Black Panthers. I was going to represent anything to make a difference in the community, the community east side that I was, I was concerned about. And uh, that's how I got involved. And uh, So it was more or less a graduate move. But I want to make it clear that when you say Black Panther, Black Student Union, it wasn't just only blacks. It was all who was concerned if you were white, if you were uh, Jewish, if you were uh, Persian, if you were... Whatever color you was, if you want to see a difference in this community or the globe, you can get with us. Mm-hmm. For some places that black folk couldn't go, white folk could. Mm-hmm. Some places that we couldn't go, Asians can penetrate us. That's what we was all about, and Panthers on the same level. Now, you said you went to college? I got tutored at Southwest College and also ended up going to uh, Leesburg, Virginia, it was National Leadership Development Studies there, but it was called Xerox University. Uh, a gentleman named Robert Woodson was the uh, founder of the organization National Leadership Development, Xerox University, mm-hmm. and uh, studied national leadership development. What he had did is got uh, several people in different parts of the United States to come and teach us, and when he found out that the history of me being involved with the Crips. I was one of the founders of the the large Crips. It was called the more they were little Crips, baby Crips, and it was the big Crips. I was one of the founders and uh, starters of the big Crips. Now the Crips, you're saying the Crips, like the gang? Yeah, it started off Crips, C R I B, which means Community Revolution Independent Boys in the Hood, because after the Black Panthers died out, because they had a series of shootouts. With Newton, matter of fact, they had a shootout with Newton Street Police Department and the Black Panthers, which was the headquarters on 41st and Central in Los Angeles. After that, it just tore us a lot of us apart. Some got on drugs, some went their direction doing their things, some stayed uh, uh, activists, such as myself and a few others. 
So we came out to uh, do a good for a good cause, the Cribs Community Revolution Independent Boys. But it ended up some people were sabotaging us, and they went and they killed this guy in Hollywood skating ring. I can't think of his name. It took his leather coat back in the, in the seventies. They gave us a bad name, but it was a misprint in the newspaper called the Crips. Some gang, new gang called the Crips. It went out and took this guy's leather coat, blah blah blah. But they impostered us. It wasn't mm. no Crips. But what happened as we were growing because we 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 were growing in numbers. I mean, when I say numbers, it's three, four, five hundred of us at the time. So we decided to go on and call ourselves, label ourselves the Crips. So that's how it ended up Crips, Green Revolution Independent Party. But you talk to a lot of Crips today, they don't really know the truth in blood back in the time it was a fight in Compton. Let me give you a story right quick to understand where the blood got born at birth from. Some of them were relatives, and a lot of us were relatives that was involved in the movement. So they said, no, we're going for blood. All those who are Crips, anti-Crips, we're going for blood. We're going to get them back who started the trouble. But what happened, it got sort of like a chain reaction. So to distinct the anti-Crips versus the Crips at the time, they went on to decide that since they were going for blood, they ended up calling themselves blood. But bloods that really in the beginning were anti-Crips. The real truth about that is you got it from the horse's mouth. That's how the blood <laughs> came out. So, Raymond, what did you do after college? Started, I had a business that I created, a fictitious business called Motivation and Focus. And all the negative guys that said it, it couldn't be no way out of the games and stuff like that. I was the one who was going to still do at times and mentor them and change their mind from uh, negative thoughts to positive thoughts. I'm currently headed a uh, mentoring counseling program to meet the uh, practical needs, emotional and spiritual needs of the young people in their transit from gang life, and also adults if they were, you know, have, if they have a desire to do. They don't have, you know, they have desires, no sense to me wasting my breath of time anybody else. So, you know, with that, I work with Colors United and uh, Jim Brown American and also Roosevelt Greer from uh, the Rams football team. And we always have town meetings and have meetings here and there with the young folks and try to give them something positive and, and, and entrepreneurship, teach them that. And not only that, get a trade just work a job. Some of them would, you know, contend with just a good job. So we uh, got those ready, you know, to teach them how to do uh, applications and interviews and how to dress and et cetera, et cetera. I asked Raymond to describe in more detail the depravity of his upbringing to contrast where he was when he ran into the Baha'i faith. My dad was basically a working, what you call a functional alcoholic. I was raised in the gambling shack, more or less like they do. They shoot crabs, they play poker, and all the time they would book horse, book horses. I didn't have to starve anything like that, but I just came from that street. I, I was born in the street in the house to me. My dad used to be abusive on me, God rest him in peace. And I mean, when I say abusive, it wasn't no, about no spanking. I used to get, I used to get a, a terrible beating. And I mean, until blood come out of me, and, and my stepmother would have to come in there and get my dad off of me because he would uh, really take his frustration out of me. But later on, I found out that, that, that his dad used to do him. He gave me my first drink at five years old of alcohol. And I must have coughed from down. Uh, we stayed at the two-story building at the time, and I coughed, tripped and fell, and went down two flights of stairs, coughing and strangling off the first drink. So not knowing that the seed was being planted, as I was coming up in life, I felt lonely, like I was in a world of many, but I was by myself. I'm not sure you heard that statement before. There were some things I was dealing in, dealing with, and I got, you know, I got molested at five years old. 
Next thing I know, I would come home and I wouldn't get any attention. You know, I couldn't talk to my dad because he was busy running the street doing his thing and running the gambling shack at home and my stepmother, too, of course. And I got exposed to alcohol. And then when I went into alcohol, I got into weed and weed to, to pills and from pills to cocaine and uh, PCP and, you know, you name the drug. I was involved in heroin. I even uh, got into that. I stopped shooting in 81. I've been clean for about 22 years now, thank God. And I don't even drink anymore, but, you know, I, I went through a big change in my life, and it took me a lot to uh, come back. But it took me all the way to Skid Row, and I wanted to go there because I didn't want nobody. I was so ashamed because everybody knew me in the movie industry doing something positive all the time. And, and I called myself hiding down there, but the funny thing, when I went down there, I damn near ran everybody I knew, the people who were at field by the wayside, too. <laughs> but I'm glad it happened because it, it, it reality set in me. I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I went into a program. And uh, that's when I got my life straightened out. Since I was a child, and I was dealing with loneliness and bitterness and hatred, I didn't know how to deal with it. Right. And that was my only crutch. It was drugs at the time, and I didn't know yeah. any way out of it. As I went along in life, done a lot of bad things and that I wasn't happy with, and I'm surely knew God wasn't happy with it. And I, I got back into the Word. Of course, I went back into the Baptist church. The weirdest thing, one, is that I didn't learn the powers of God and the Holy Spirit until I went out there in the wilderness. Things were happening to me. Friends were getting shot, you know, people dying and drying down in my arms and got stabbed, you know. Guns were put on me. I put, you know, I've been in shootouts. And never once I was hurt where I had to go to the hospital for a long time or anything I never once did any hard time. I've been, I went to jail a couple of times uh, for uh, certain things. And the cases, some of the cases throughout, some of the cases I had to do a time on. It wasn't done more. Altogether in my lifetime, I say I did maybe about uh, two years and off and all my whole lifetime in my life. And I'm 54 years old right now. So I knew God was with me then for that to happen. And so when I got into the detail of the, the Holy Bible, which is King James Version, there were some questions not answered. They couldn't answer certain questions. I said, wait a minute, hold on, what was, be, what was before Christ? I mean, if, if Christianity is only 2,000 years old and it was been people on this earth longer than that, who was they looking up to? Who was they praying to then? Funny thing, I was, I was counseling this young lady named Bridget Anderson. She was a young child actress. Just before that, it was another young lady. She was 16, and, and she was on heroin and cocaine. And Bridget was, too. I ended up mentoring the other young lady. I can't think of her name. So she got her life straightened out. Word of mouth got down to Malibu, and uh, I ended up counseling. She got she stayed clean for two years. I told her, for a couple of years, I told her, whatever you do, don't go back to your old friends right now. So she got her job, and she got herself together, and she was talking about getting back in the movie industry, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, because she knew the people already. And it just so happened one night I got a call after two years. My mother called me and said, hey, look, Bridget's in the hospital in a coma. I said, what? She went back with the guy. Well, so anyway, in the process, uh, as this went along, she passed away. Young lady, too. I ended up going to the funeral, so I sang the Lord's Prayer. And I spoke about Jesus and Mary Magdalena, you know, so, you know, how she lived her life and so I shared that, and it was like, oh, it's such an impact in this thing. Oh, it's so Julie and Hank came to me from the Baha'i Faith 
They were at Bridget's funeral because they knew Bridget's family. Because Judy Colt, which is Hank's wife, they're an older couple. She was CPA uh, doing a lot of celebrity bookkeeping, so they met along in those in that area. So while I was there, they came to me and said, oh, you've got to come to the Baha'i Center. And, you know, oh, you got such a nice voice. I mean, you had to come here for a special guest. So I said, yeah, I would come. So I thought, warrant that it was a children's center or something, you know. Right. So I said, well, and it two months passed, but I kept telling, I said, look, I'm going to make it down there. I just, just give me time. And, you know, I think they were expecting me a little sooner. So finally, after three months, I decided, let me go on down there. I made a commitment. Let me go on down there to the fire center. So that's when I went into the center. And um, and what happened, I ended up listening to, the, uh, you know, sharing every uh, book. They was they was doing the readings, uh, Jewish faith, uh Hindu faith and Lord Astor faith, and I said, wow, this is different. The Islamic faith and Christianity faith, and uh, they said, well, now, you know, we're going to pray in silence to who, whatever your uh, faith is, you can pray, yeah, you pray in silence and meditate. So I said, this is cool. And so the choir came on. I said, hey, I remember some of the songs when I was in in uh, Baptist church. I, and, and then I, I was listening to the talk, the sharing about the Baha'i faith. And, you know, they say, hey, we embrace all faith. We're not telling you to not, you know, just study on this faith, but we want you to study on all faith so man can understand man and their faith, and that way we'll have harmony. And I say, wow, I never heard this before. So to me, it was uh, the Baha'i faith was telling me it was non-denomination. I couldn't even say Baha'u'llah at the time. I think I said Baha'u'llah <laughs> when I first <laughs> The Bahu, he's the mean glory of God. I said, oh, okay. And I kept hearing, they said, la, la, fa, la, fa. What the hell? La, fa, la, fa. What is up? And, and all these words that, 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 you know, these cliches and what stood out the most, I, I, you know, God rest him in peace. It was a gentleman that came up and he shared his life that he was a pimp and this and that. And he was on drugs and he, you know, he was out in the street, yada, yada, yada. And then when I heard his story, I said, hey, this thing got to be real. You know, and I'm looking at the brother, you know, and I can tell he was out there. You know, you know, you can tell when other folks been out there in the street and the avenues, we call it. So I went to the fireside after the service. Raymond, for folks that are not Baha'i, can you explain what a fireside is? What I understand a fireside is, it's a fellowship. And what it does for people who are not, don't have the quite understanding of the Baha'i faith, it teaches different subjects on what I identify with our life and also uh, what the Baha'i faith is about and in this question answering to get more understanding of the faith and all are in to inspire you to continue on with the faith of the Baha'i. It's more or less an enlightening session to me. Mm-hmm. That's what the uh, fireside would be, a fellowship. Like the people in some churches have Bible study to understand more of the Word mm-hmm. and get more enhanced uh, knowledge on it. Well, the fireside is the same way. Only thing is the more of the Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah, not to rule out other faith that is out there. To you know, let them know that we embrace to understand those who are inquiring in that particular neighborhood. Because some people don't know, so the fireside is more or less a teachable, a teaching class. So you went to one after going to this Baha'i meeting. The Baha'i okay. Center, uh, now I didn't join just then. I wanted to get in and investigate more because he kept saying, investigate for yourself, investigate for yourself. That's what I did. And then I I was looking at uh, what the Baha'u'llah, he wrote a writing and said, well, if you see 
ten good things in a person and one bad thing. Don't look at the one bad thing in that person. Look at the ten, ten good things. If you see one good thing in that person and ten bad things, you look at that one good thing in that individual and don't leave the other alone. And when I seen that, 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 that stuck to me. And I said, hmm, this is, this is being not judgmental. I like this. And it applied to me. And it, and it, had, it enlightened me to certain things about I didn't understand the Bibles. And the, what happened, the Baha'i faith has taught me more to understand, and even just like the Jewish faith, uh, except the other faith that's going on out there, the Hindu faith. What happened is that they used to come, and occasionally they still come and share what their faith is all about. And the Hindu faith was all about. They're coming, you know, entertain us and, and let us know what's going on in life. It's even had Indians. You know, I used to think that these Indians called these called Sioux. I didn't even know they had. That was like calling them a bad name. And, you know, come to find out their name is something else. Then Baha'i faith, that's, that's what got me involved. And, and, and that was around 2000. 2001, and, and uh, Julie and Hank was a big part of that. And, and from there on, other people took me under their wing, and, you know, I told my life story at one time, and they were like, what? Wow, you know. Matter of fact, some Baha'i brother, I can't think his name, but he did a global thing on my life story, you know, being that I was one of the founders of the crib. How long was it between the time that you ran into the Baha'i faith that you actually became a Baha'i? It was about two years at least. Raymond mentioned earlier that he had been to Europe. I asked Raymond to describe the circumstances that led him to travel to Europe. When, after I got graduated from National Leadership Development, word got out about me and a few other folks that changed their lifestyle, but they requested me, and what happened, a gentleman named Sims, Phil Sims from Colors United, uh, he went down there to Copenhagen, Denmark, and Oslo to talk to them about the racial tension and the gangs and stuff. They were looking at boys and colors, boys in the hood and colors, and they were copycatting, and they were starting in the little gangs out there, Crips and whatnot, you know what I'm saying, in Europe, okay? A few things didn't come from the street, like, such as myself. So they said, no, we want to hear from somebody that lived the life. You can't tell us nothing. We have some questions we want to answer. So Tupac, the uh, Ice-T was supposed to go down there at that time, Tupac had got shot. He didn't die the first time he got shot and robbed, mm. from understanding, at the studio. And I see one in, uh, in, in exile at the time. So Phil said, man, we can't get nobody else, and you fit the description to go out here and, and, and teach these uh, youngsters because they, they're looking at boys and color, boys in the hood and colors, man, and they're getting all wild out there. I said, what? He said, are you able to go? I said, well, you know, yes. And I'm like, I thought it was going to be a language barrier. But anyway, I end up going down there spoke about racial problems and also uh, I was a hardcore gang specialist speaking on gangs and stuff and drugs and alcohol dependency. Supposed to stay down there for a week. And we also got, ended up staying two weeks down there. And they said the Mexicans and blacks weren't getting along at all. And a guy named Oscar went down there. He was a youngster, 18. So we went down there to make a statement. So him and I went down there the first time, which was uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And we went to all these youth centers, schools and the arena, they threw this big thing with the Fugees over there. That's when uh, Lauren Hill was with the Fugees and uh, Naughty by Nature, they did a thing called a seminar, but they wanted us to come there and speak on that. Man, this thing got so worse. Uh, UK full. I, I mean, I have still some clippings. The tabloids 
gangster from Los Angeles, California, watch California come out here and talk to young kids about changing their lifestyle, their way of living. That didn't get me when I went there to share my life story. Before I went out there, I felt the uh, spirit uh, uh, confused and hurt and not knowing which way to go when I just stepped out there over backstage and I just peeked out there before it started. And naturally, I was the first one, and Oscar was the first one that went out there. And we did a little sketch thing. They had made up this guy in blood coming from him and this and that. And so they were fighting. I picked up the guy from the ground and said, look, uh, and looked up at the crowd and said, look, it doesn't have to be this way. And it was so touching. I'm going to tell you something. This was the first time in my life that I seen something I was good in the newspapers did something bad. That sketch was the first thing on the news when the news first came on, and they were saying, yeah, Raymond Green Oscar also came down here from the United States of America to talk to, and it's been such an impact. And when I got through sharing my life story, and I said, look, I don't want y'all to feel sorry for me. I want you to know I'm grateful the life I live, the things I experience, that I'm still living here to tell the story, to, to hopefully that it wraps and hits you and, and you can it, it penetrates you where you can be aware or be a better person. And I still have work to do with myself as well. Yeah, Raymond, I have a question for you. When you first left Xerox University for that le- in that leadership program and you went back to your neighborhood and you started that mentoring program, you were still heavy into drugs, right? No. I stopped in 87. Okay. So how old were you at, at 87, in, in 1987? Oh I was in my 40s. Okay. I mean, what did you do those 40 years? That, uh, I, you, told, you talked about the first, I don't know, 15, 16 years of what, what was going down. But what went down after you were, let's say, 18 and before you, you cleaned yourself up in 1987? I was still trying to get it together. I was what you call an active addict, alcoholic, uh, a functional and so it was always a job to do out there. I was into uh, security, bodyguard service at the time, but then I still had this issue. This drug thing was still tearing me down. So I was still going in and out to fast life and straddling the fist, playing both sides of the fence. The reason why I did, probably didn't talk about it because I wasn't stable at all whatsoever. Really, I would say much of nothing, too much of nothing was going on in my life at the time. And I was so confused and didn't know which way to go. So I uh, lost a lot of years in between that. Yeah. Let me put it away. It's almost like you get you got Alzheimer's right. or you got blackout drinking so much that night before you can't remember what you've done. All people tell you, you you, you, you done some messed up things. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Right. So I, I can't dictate the, all those years sure. in, in, in between. me. All I know is that I wasn't content with my life and I was moving from pillow to post and, uh, you yeah. know, just, just active guy out there doing no work, going nowhere fast, basically. And it was just, you were just sick and tired of not going, getting anywhere that you just pulled yourself up and said, I'm going to do something different? Well, I always stayed in prayer okay. uh, to God uh-huh. in this situation. I suppose I have a better life than I have now because I knew I was smart, sharp, had a gift of gab. I was sharp in understanding people, communication, public relations. I had that already. And then when I went to National Leadership Development, what they've done is took it. This is like I've trained you in martial arts. 
you already have self-defense in you. Is that what I do is bring out what you have in you, but put it in a strategic plan and movement and expedite it the, prop, the appropriate way to execute your opponent or restrain a person without hurting them or breaking a bone. Mm-hmm. So basically, that's what they've done to me is manicure me. They, 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 sh- they sharpened me. They brought what I had already in me out of me. You know, even Phil Simpson would say, I used to look up to Jim Brown. He used to say, Jim Brown, America, I can't, da, da, da. And he said, man, they said, if you, once you find out, Raymond Greer, who you really are, you find out you're one of the most powerful persons, one of the most powerful persons in the world, and you really don't need them. You'd be surprised who you really are and what impact you have now. And it, it always stuck to me. But not to get fat here, because I always have to pray for some humble pie. You know, God, you know what I'm saying? Because if we don't, it's, it's good. Warren, it's probably good that we don't know how many blessings that we bless people through this and that, because I know I also seen $3 million in my lifetime, mm-hmm. and I also lost it because my head was so big, you couldn't tell me nothing. Anybody, anything probably can fly in there and just turn circles. You probably can take a boat flight and make a U-turn in my brain. That's how big it was. <laughs> but nothing, it wouldn't hit anything. I'm glad it was taken away because what we what, what it done, they said, well, when you get bankrupt spiritually, physically, and mentally, you you know you didn't got whipped. And the spiritual whooping was more so than that, that physical thing. And that's what I experienced in life, because I, I knew and I felt that I was a better person than with the life I was living. I had to re- represent. Even when I was out there in the street, you got to represent. You either ride or die. You know, and that's a true saying. You know, we don't die, we multiply for our gains. It's never going to be stopped. You know, it really didn't start with the Crips and the Bloods. It started with businessmen. So I was a baby businessman before that. With him, and they had the uh, farmers. They had the uh, another gang called the Slauson Gangs. And, you know, all of them was like our, our OGs over the Crips and Bloods, Ace Deuce and A-Trade Gangsters, and et cetera, et cetera. Then before that it was the Italian Gangs. And then we had the Irish Gangs. So when I broke that down to them, said, well, do you think? Now, the funny thing, Warren, you take this, you can put it on record and have it off record. They was interviewing me in, in a year. They said, do you think that this hip-hop rap has a lot to bear on, a lot of trouble that's going on? I said, hold up. Oh, stop, stop, stop. Let's go back to some of these movies like uh, Ma Barker and her son. They glorified her. Uh, Shotgun Kelly, you know, they glorified him. They made movies of these people. So if you're going to go into impact, and we wasn't the first to have the network on television, if you will, the people of the movie industry first had this. And you talk about Al Capone movies in this lifestyle, uh, Babyface Nelson. And then you got James Cagney playing the gangster. I'm on top of the world. I mean, then you got Scarface that's grabbing the other, Al Pacino that's grabbed the other generation. So every... Generation, there's always was a game. Even look at, oh, what's his name? He didn't made a name for himself. He's talking about 15, 15 minutes of pain. Charles, Charles Manson. I have to go back to this to let you understand. And if the question's ever asked, that'll let them know that that's a real gangster dude. He's been in there. He's telling the truth. And this is how it's going to have to be incited and visualized where it really started from. And if you notice, every generation, every 10 years, there's always somebody that done, that was a notorious, a famous big robber. You got Bonnie and Clyde, you know, and so on and so on. 
they've made movies of these people long before hip-hop started. So, no, hip-hop has nothing to do with the seeds been planted through the television. And the books are being read. And the story's been told. And the plays are being done. If we're going to do anything to make a difference, we have to use the same sublimable message that was used from the beginning of time that's in fact affecting us right now. That's and that's what my goal is set on. The only thing we can do in our time in day one is leave a trail where we can't do it all because I doubt seriously that it happened in our lifetime, but at least we can leave a trailway for those who are concerned and generations to come, and they can pick it up and take it from there. Just like I believe the Black Student Union, the Black Panthers, and all the other organizations are a part of Mr. Obama, yeah. President Obama being a president. I never thought and dreamt my wildest dream that we would see uh, African Americans from Africa, from slaves, to be where they are today. Now, now, if they go in there and do the job right or wrong or indifference, it doesn't make a difference. Is that we made some kind of impact to make a difference. Now, if we can do that, we can bring more harmony and love and understanding of the other racial, the races, and then know that we all from Africa. And let them know the truth. And and, 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 and he's going to rap about something. Oh, here I go. You got me started. We're going to rap about something. We're going to make a movie about something. Let's keep it real. That's all. And that's my goal, and I'm still doing it. Motivation and focus. And another thing, Warren, no one has a monopoly on the solution. I realize in my life that I have my own part to play in this life. And that I am just one player in the argument. And I have worked with thousands of kids and adults, some who had been caught up in gang violence, have now earned their black belts in uh, awards and et cetera, have won national tournaments. And I feel that there are no boundaries to where I can work. It doesn't make a difference if we are dealing with the kids in Japan or Kuwait. If they are facing the same problems, they have the same needs. The Baha'i faith has the exact spiritual guidance that I feel and they see and understand, and that's what brought me to the Baha'i faith. And I don't have resent not one moment that I've been a Baha'i. What do you think your life would have been like if you had not run into the Baha'i faith? Still confused spiritually and lost. So thanks so much for telling your story. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Raymond Greer a Baha'i who grew up under depraved circumstances and was able to rise above them to become a noble being with a noble purpose. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
like to go with me down my dead end street. Would you like to come with me to village ghetto land? See the people lock their doors while robbers laugh and steal. Beggars watch and eat their meals from garbage Glass is everywhere. It's a bloody scene. Killing plagues the citizens. Yes, they own police. Children play with rusted cars. Swords cover their hands. Politicians laugh and drink, drunk to all demands. Buying dog food now, starvation roams the street. Babies die before they're born, infected by the greed. Now some folks say that we should be glad for what we have. Tell me, would you be happy? Will it get to now? Yet thou hast 
The day he left her, she couldn't speak. Stared out the window the better part of a week. She'd lived her life through him for such a long time. When she looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find. She had to open the door a little wider now. She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow. She walked into the fire, alone and scared stiff. Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift. Little Jamie's body has never worked right. He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night. His parents get weary and his parents get worn. Still, they always bless the day that little Jamie was born. He opens the door a little wider now, lifts them up a little higher somehow. It may look to the world. Like a twenty-four-hour shift, but his folks know life with Jamie is just a strangely wrapped gift. What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire. Do we burn or do we My doorstep looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded; it's all tattered and torn. For a moment, I wonder what on earth it might be. Till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. Lift me up a little higher somehow. I used to run like the blazes. Now I get the drift. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Someone who loves me. Someone who really, really. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift.
little butterfly comes down to remind me the way it whispers on the breeze. All this weight I carry around deep inside me makes it harder to fly free. So fly, little one, fly. You're the answer to the prayers of every saint that longed to die. No earthly things on your clean, tiny wings, made only of virtue and the sky. So fly, little one, XOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.